After years of horrific decisions, devious conspiracies, salacious marriages, and brutal bloodbaths, we have arrived at the end of an era. This is the epic finale of the Battle Royale for dominance over the Frankish Empire. This is the quest for power. Welcome back to the Quest for Power, where we are ranking and reviewing all of the European monarchs from the early Middle Ages to World War I. We are your European lore masters, Scott and Michael, and today we are uncovering the secrets of Clotaire, spelled like Clothar, of House Merovingian, first of his name, Kinslayer, King of Soissons, King of Orléans, King of Eastern Franks, King of Paris, King of Burgundians, and last but not least, King of all the Franks. If you're looking for some more adventures and want to join the Lore Masters Guild, you can do so at patreon.com slash quest for power. There we have side quest episodes to discover the people, places, factions, and other things hidden in European lore dungeons that are not in the main quest. And of course, you always get a shout out welcoming you to the guild well i don't need to say how have you been because uh you were just uh up here yeah you managed to get me to crawl out of my house every once in a while i to, did that weekend so i did yeah, it was cool we got to see a very cool concert in chicago yeah got to see amaranth which is my favorite band of all time and uh they killed it even though they weren't the opening act i mean they weren't the headliner yeah yeah that would have that was kind of disappointing that they weren't the headliner but you know the beggars can't be choosers at this point so yeah they're still not the ones who stick out in my head because uh oh Nanowar God, no. of steel those guys <laughs> really uh went just went balls to the wall on comedy that made fun of metal fans Oh yes, yeah. That's that is that is yeah. That is their mo. I looked up later. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like Monty Python meets metal meets a strip show. Yeah, well, something like that. It's yeah. It's Ish. kind of bizarre. Somewhere in there, it was really odd. It was fantastic. Though. It was bizarre. Yeah, but it was really <laughs> fun. Uh, I definitely added like Uranus, the song to my like spotify because it's genuinely hilarious and also they they <laughs> they rocked like they sounded great oh that... yeah they were awesome they were yeah. so much fun i loved um when they did it we're gonna every they're making fun of like how odin is the you know the king the god of metal and they said like what he retired to uh ikea and he was now the god of Ikea or something like that. And then they put together an Ikea shelf live on stage. That was pretty epic. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of uh, stuff to toss out in the crowd that evening. So yes. very cool. Fun yeah. show. Yeah. And we made the very good decision of, uh, what do you want to call that? Um, spur yeah, last the moment minute. buying. The last yeah. minute buy upgrades. Because that place was full. That would have been a nightmare. Yeah, most worthwhile money spent. Just just yeah. having 
reserve having a reserved place to actually see the stage because I went to go and just stand up to go and like to the bathroom could hardly get to the bathroom and back just so many people that yeah you had to be rude you had to literally shove people out of the way you'd be like excuse me and then move forward like there was right. you could yeah. not be timid you had to assert your dominance yeah yeah you'd uh, <laughs> ask for forgiveness not for permission <laughs> yeah exactly so very cool very fun yeah yeah well let's uh get on to the the main source uh the main uh act this week uh we have uh quite a quite a uh show to get on with uh sources we lean heavily on gregory of tours per usual however he is alive towards the end of clotaire's reign so he's gonna have a lot to say about this and with that mr dm let's start today's session this is the year of our lord 511 the king is dead King Clovis united all of Francia under one banner through treachery and war. In the midst of the violence, heavily persuaded by his wife, Queen Consort Clotilda, he converted himself and the kingdom from Germanic paganism to Nicene Christianity, immediately assumed the role of defender of the faith and champion of Gaul. Upon his death, his kingdom was divided between his four sons. The king and queen's youngest son, Clotar, born around 498, now assumes the throne and around the precarious age of 13. Not only does he have to play the Game of Thrones against his three older brothers next to him, but he also has to be aware of the threat posed by Theodoric the Great in Italy. All right, so up front, you might need to listen to this episode a couple of times to catch everything. You could just listen to once and go on your merry way as well. There's going to be several storylines, and there'll be at times where we just pause the storyline because we need to move on to the next, and then we'll catch up with that storyline later. And this also ties to a lot of previous episodes and not just that previous kingdoms that we have done. So this is like the culmination of everything we have done up to this point. So it's kind of a fun last hurrah for the last of Clovis's sons. There we go. We're we're assembling the um, we're assembling the the Merovingian cinematic universe. Yes, exactly. There you go. I love it. Uh, Clo Clotaire, God, I it's gonna mess me up every time I see the spelling. Uh, inherited the kingdom of Soissons when Francia was partitioned in 511. So this is like the northeastern part of France. It's modern day Belgium and Netherlands. It's not really the best part of Francia. Like he could, that's one of the worst parts of it. So we'll see what he makes of it. And uh, to begin with, nothing really happens until the year 516. And he receives news that his mother's family murderer, the Burgundian King Gundobad died. And now his son Sigismund is ruling in his place. So just something to think about. Kind of interesting. Keeping up with the times. Yep. Yep. In 517, Clothar Clotaire met the Thuringian princess Ingud, whose father is Thuringian King Baderic. This could be true. She also could just be a peasant. So I've seen both stories. Just so you have all the information. I like that she's a princess because it's fun. 
uh, the two appeared to get along quite well, and he made her a morgantic or second-rate wife. And this is why I think she may have been a peasant, is because... Um, so this is the second time we're kind of bumping into this Frankish custom. The first time was Clovis and his unnamed second-rate wife that gave birth to, to Uteric. And basically, her being a second-rate wife, she does not attain the same rank as titles as Clotaire as her husband, but she is entitled to the massive dowry given to her right in the beginning, like the, her big gift. And that is basically it, but that is definitely her property. Should he die and she is officially his wife. So all of their children are legitimate heirs to the throne, which could cause, you know, it's a significant impact because you could have quite a bit dividing up a massive kingdom or even a tiny kingdom and causing civil wars. And this is even on the second wife or yeah, second rate wife, correct? Correct. Yeah. Second rate wives, um, their children are heirs. Um, so, so some sources and historians have the mistake of calling these women mistresses and concubines. And that's basically, that's because what the Roman law said is what they were, but it's not really it what they were. Um, it was just like the Christian sources trying to come up with a way in their own mind to resort who these women were because they didn't understand the difference in um, Germanic Frankish culture and you know, the difference between that and the refined Roman one. Someone tells me you can't have a your second wife that you chronologically marry take over as first-rate wife and bump bump your first wife down to second-rate. No, no, she started out as the second-rate wife, which is kind of interesting. So it, oh, she I doesn't see. seem yeah. to be, she was not, it's, she may or may not have been given title queen. I don't think she was at this point. Um, given title queen, I think literally she just shared his bedchamber and that's basically oh. it. I guess my um, thought is can if if you married one person, can you or I'm sorry, if you if you took only one wife, can that one wife be second rate? I think so, yes. Ugh, you know, I because I can understand the logic. Yeah, just imagine like that, like wow, you're the only spouse at this you're the only spouse at this point and you yep. still don't even get to be first rate it the past is the worst especially to women yeah also yeah i always thought of it they must not have thought of it that way and again even our way of explaining it could be wrong but that's basically what i see because i don't think she is queen yet and and you'll see why later but gregory thinks they had this union um, because of the sin of lust, which he obviously detests. And I'm going to go ahead and say, I actually think he's right in this case. I think they just, you know, <laughs> he really liked the way she looked and enjoyed her, you know, her company. And they must have had a very enjoyable wedding night because it wasn't long after they were married that that same year, Ingud gave a name, gave... Um, Clotaire, a son named Gunthier. But then they waited a little bit longer. They settled down a little bit because, you know, children tend to do that to you. Or war tends to do that to you, whatever is which. 
Yep. And uh, their second child named Caribert is born around 521. And in the middle of all this time, right around between the year 520 and the year 540. So in the span of 20 years, we have narrowed it down. Clotaire has a son named Cram, and he is born from his probably second wife, Kunsin. I know we know nothing about Kunsin other than she existed and she is the mother of Clotaire's son, Cram. So we can infer that she married Clotaire sometime between 520 and 540 or even before that. Yeah. But we don't know anything else. So like she may not have been, so Inga may not have been his first wife that we know of. Kind of a, a messy area. Yeah. Well, in 522, news begins spreading about a major event happening in Burgundy. The future Saint Sigismund decided that he needed to have his son Segeric smothered to death by servants because he insulted Segeric's, uh because he insulted his new wife, Sigismund's new wife. Uh, we'll go through this. We'll go through this when we cover the Burgundians. Um, there's a little bit more to the story, but we don't really have time to continue on and dig in the depths. The big issue with that is Segeric was the first son, is the son of his first wife, Ostrogotho. And therefore, he is the virtual grandson of virtual Emperor Theodoric the Great. Who has basically had control. So he royally screwed himself from any kind of help from the Goths. This is, I don't know if you remember in Theodoric's episode where there was a son-in-law death that caused the his kingdom to collapse. That's this son right here, Segeric. Nice. It's nice when you can so, trace back the demise of a people entirely to one person. Yeah, At least know, you know who to blame. Crazy? <laughs> it's insane how like one little event has cascading effects throughout history that affects things that you would not even think about. I'm sure this will, uh, when we rank and review that man, we'll give them high marks on their legacy play. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. By the year 523 came around, Clovis's sons obviously were no longer little boys, but warriors, kings trained for war. I am, We don't know nothing about their childhood, but it's a good guess that they trained for battle, for tactics. I mean... Frankish kings were warrior kings. They're not some that sit in a palace doing nothing all day. Yeah. Encouraged by Clotilda, her sons Clotaire, Kildebert, and Clodomer formed the Avengers Alliance and invaded the unstable Burgundy to avenge their mother's... their mother... For Sigismund's father, Gundobad, stealing her land, killing her family, and throwing her mother down a well. Clotaire took a back seat, being the youngest, and his brother Clodomer takes uh, the lead. So he kind of just sits back. He's like, all right, you know, I'm not quite ready for this stuff yet. We'll just follow the older bro into the fire. 
Clodomir captures Sigismund and he beheads him and the rest of his family and symbolically chucks them into a well. And we go over this in great detail last episode, which was episode number 32. Another one down the well. Yes, exactly. We just have an obsession with wells, apparently. Yeah. Can't be I'm good for your forward drinking to, water. I'm looking forward to the new to the new story. We've, yeah, we've, the we've heard the well chucking a few I, times now. I know. I can't wait. We are finally done with the well chucking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Until time for some new until, family traditions. Yeah. Until until we get back to the um, Burgundians to explain the, their whole demise. <clears throat> with the arrival of winter of 523 going into 524, the Avengers Alliance of Clovis's sons had to halt their advance into Burgundy because it's getting a little cold out. And generally, you don't want to wage uh, war during winter. And you can't even during spring because the fields are so muddy, your supply trains will just get stuck. So you got to really kind of sit till June. Mm -hmm. And while they waited, Godomar, who is the new king of Burgundy, who did not piss off Teodoric the Great, ran to him and got some fresh, well-armed and trained Ostrogothic troops to help replenish his ranks and take back Burgundy from the Avengers. So he massacres the uh, militia that was held there. The garrison, that's the word. The garrison that was held there. Once campaign season opens up in the summer of 524, the Avengers storm into Burgundy, this time with Teuteric, since he's no longer killing his wife's father, he's just killing her uncle. So <laughs> she must have given him permission to take along. Honey, honey, I, I'm not killing your father. I I, I made my, uh, you know, <laughs> agreement that yeah. I wouldn't do that. But your uncle, on the other hand, sorry, he's got to go. Yeah, fair game. Uh. Clotaire and his brothers get as far as modern-day Germanic-French eastern border just outside the Alps, so they get pretty far, and they're met by Godemar. In the fighting, they suffer a serious defeat, and a party member is killed. Uh, Clotilde's eldest son, Clodomer, is beheaded, his head placed on a spike before the Frankish kings, and they retreated back to their domains. So, that's not great. It's never good seeing your brother's head being put on a spike, even no matter what you feel towards him. Yeah, because uh, there's a fair chance you're next. Yeah, there's a very good chance. Uh, Clodomer left behind uh, Queen Consort Guntiuk and his three children, Teodobald, Gunther, and Clodoald. It isn't long before Clo Clotaire, he decides, I'm going to claim the widow of my brother as my wife. So he grabs Guntiuk and makes her officially queen. So she is now like a first rate wife, I guess, if that's what you would call it. I would Promotion. just say it's an official title with titles, ranks. She gets everything. Sweet. But we have no idea what she thought of marrying her deceased husband's brother. And if it was her choice or not, I'm guessing not. I think we just assume that's the default in like 99% of these marriages. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is uh, 
this is kind of Clotaire's first foray into uh, the very um, <laughs> hot topic of uh, incest, because the mm. book of Leviticus is very clear that a man should not ever marry his brother's wife. Ever. So maybe he gets a pass because he's Frankish royalty and the church can't do anything. I don't know. Right. His brother's wife, though. I mean, that's not like very like incestuous, is it? According to the book of Leviticus, it is. And therefore, according to the Catholic Church at this time, it very much is. And we will when... see that not this king, but a couple of kings down the road, they're going to actually take some action when that happens. I guess uh, according to the book of Leviticus, marriage is like Olive Garden. When you're here, you're family. And uh, <laughs> that's a... It's a no-no, I guess. It's just kind of, don't get me wrong, like, kind of has, like, some weird vibes about it. But I guess, like, didn't, an incestuous was probably not the phrase that I would use. No, but that's what it, the phrase the church uses. I agree. Sin, I, I sinful, don't either. Though. The church and I agree. Kind of sinful. <laughs> it's very sinful. And through his marriage through Guntiuk, he gets her right as sole heiress of the Burgundian King Gadizel's land. So that gives him a massive boost in legitimacy over his parts, uh, old parts of Burgundy, along with all the treasure and uh, property of Clodomer. So he might not get all the land in Clodomer's kingdom because of partition, the way partition. But because of this, he gets all of that goody stuff. There's just one little problem. Colotomer, as I said, left behind three legitimate sons. And Celiac Law, laid down by his father, Clovis, determines that Colotomer's kingdom should be divided and his possessions should be divided amongst his three sons. So while he will get Guntiuk's Burgundian land, because that's tied to her... He does not get his brother's kingdom. Yikes. And he did what any good stepfather uncle would do. He and his brother Kildebert got together and murdered two of his stepson nephews. On the other, and the other one, Clodoald, managed to escape, become a monk, and no longer have claim to an inheritance, and basically no longer a problem. We went into the full story of this uh, in last episode, number 32. I didn't think you wanted to hash that all out again. Yeah, I was about to say, just listen to that episode. It's, yeah, uh... but... But despite that, since we are in Clotaire's uh, episode and we're talking about his, his wife, I can't imagine the horror and devastation of finding out your new husband, who you were forcibly married to, just murdered your children. Yeah. yeah That's well. an undegreeable nightmare to imagine. Uh, yeah. Those times were uh, a little depressing. Yeah, the past, again, is the worst think that's yeah. going to become a common phrase on this show yeah i'm not a big fan of romanticizing the past that much so. no 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 i All enjoy right. the stories but that's it <laughs> yeah yeah next uh after clodomer's children were disinherited one way or another his kingdom was partitioned as is tradition among his three remaining brothers teuteric kildebert and clotaire 
And through this, he received his full treasury somehow through his marriage with Guntiuk. So the brothers may have come up to an agreement and said, well, since you married her, I guess you get all of his treasury. Clotaire must have made a very convincing argument, maybe at sword point, who knows, the way these Merovingians operate. Clotaire's spies let him know that the Thuringian king, uh, King Ermanifried, is aided by Clotaire's brother, uh, Teuderic, defeats and kills uh, the Thuringian king's brother, Baderic, in 531. Remember, I said Baderic happens to be the father or might be the father of his wife, Ingud. So... That's interesting. And the reason I bring that up is because later that year, Colter receives a letter from his br brother, Teuteric, and he goes, uh, that bastard, Hermanifried, cheated me and he deserves to die. If you want to help me kick his ass, I'll give you some land. Which Colter's like, I'll take land, you know? Yeah. I, I, like, I like killing, I like land. So he readies his forces and he joins his brother to Uteric in battle against Hermanifried. The Franks completely obliterate the Thuringian army in the Battle of Unstrut. It was more of a massacre than uh, a battle, uh, but Hermanifried escaped. And over a series of events that we went through in Teuteric's episode number 28, Hermanifried mysteriously dies while taking a stroll with Teuteric as they were discussing peace terms. I mean, they yeah. got peace eventually, so... It was all worth it in the end. Hermanifried's <laughs> wife and children escaped to Ravenna, but they're pretty much neutralized and they're no longer threats. They're just the care... They're under the care of uh, the Ostrogoths now. After his mysterious uh, death, the brothers continued to wage war against uh, Kingless Thuringia until all of it's captured. Because, you know, just because the king dies doesn't mean everyone's just going to give up their land willy-nilly, especially the nobility. Tend Dang. not to do that. Uh, in the conflict, uh, sometime during all this, Clotaire's men capture a young princess, uh, Radegund of Thuringia, who is the niece of Hermanifried, and she was born around the year 520, so she is around... Uh, ages 8 to 12 years old. That has to be terrifying. Yeah. Uh, honestly, I feel like it's probably not the case. But boy, just when you condense a lot of history like this, it really feels like a, you'd have a level of existential dread. Like, yeah, you know, tomorrow we can just get attacked at any point. Obviously, that happen can happen today. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Like, yeah, this has got to be rough where you're just like, hmm, these walls, if I have any, only going to do so much. Yeah, exactly. That just has to be horrific. And now, you know, you're taken by these big men with weapons and, you know, probably blood on the weapons. And well, oof. Ho hopefully uh, Princess Radigund has as good of a time as a hostage can get. Yeah, I mean, some hostages are treated very nicely. They're treated like royal because, you know, that's generally how hostage... There's some weird yeah. 
royal system of uh, honor that works within royalty that they generally don't kill hostages unless you royally fuck up. Ha, I get it. Um, <laughs> I couldn't help yeah. myself. I'm happy that, uh, yeah, at least she's royalty. She has the luxury yeah. of being a hostage. Yeah, a little. Shake it, being treated okay. Yeah, exactly. Uh, here's a little background, though, on Radigan's situation. The reason she was living with her uncle, you know, it wasn't her father, Hermanafried, in the first place is because Hermanafried murdered her brother, King Berkchar, or Berkar, to gain control over his land. So she's already in a pretty awful situation. Yeah. <laughs> so she's just being transferred, you know, as a spoil of war from one person to the next. Speaking of dis uh, discussing the distribution for spoils of war, a fierce debate broke out between the brothers over who would get the hand of the princess, since obviously whoever married her would gain a lot more legitimacy in the areas of the old Thuringian kingdom, and bloodlines are everything these days. And uh, Clotair, our buddy, uh, eventually won out on the children's playground argument of I call dibs by saying it was his men who captured her. Try and take her away from me, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and with that, Clotair added more lands, uh, territories, lands. He brought home a new fiance since they weren't married yet, most likely due to her age. They had some standards back then. Uh, he sent her to his uh, villa, um, probably with a new household of servants and tutors until they were going to be wed. So all in all, really good turn of events for Clotaire, not so much for Radagund. He gets to avenge his wife in Gund and against the primary killer of her father and gets a new fiance and a bunch of land in the process. So this was a good set of events. It's a good win. All in all. Good win. Uh, I'm not saying ethical by any means, but it's a good win. Good for uh, him. Not good for everyone else. Strategic wise. Yeah. Uh, after the death of Clotaire's brother, Clodomer, in the previous war that we talked against the Burgundians, he and his brother Kildebert were busy solidifying their power, and they pretty much left Godemar, the new Burgundian king, alone for like, I don't know. 10 years they kind of just left left him go and by the time 532 uh rolled around the burgundians ally the ostrogothic kingdom was now into its slow descent into climax which you could listen to all of our ostrogothic kingdom episodes to understand how horrifically painful that collapse was uh Clotaire, Theodobert, and Kildebert seized the opportunity and they crushed Grotemar at the Battle of Atun. And they, even though they have forced Grotemar to abandon his lands, he continues resisting against the Franks, so they can't seem to kill this guy. While he is dealing with the Burgundians, Clotaire sends his uh, son Gontier uh, to Frankish um, Prince battle training. Do you probably know what I'm talking about when I say Frankish prince battle training? Um, yeah. What's well, like a good yeah. stepping stone that all of our kings do? With you their, gotta, with you gotta beat up on the Visigoths. Yeah, there you go. He uh, he got he sent his eldest sons to go beat up some Visigoths and reconquer Septimania. 
they had some success, but then his son, Guntier, mysteriously dies in 532, so that's not great. And the other son, Kiraberg, goes, nah, I've had enough. I'm just going to go home. Keep in mind, if the dates are correct, he's like, the Kiraberg is like 12, between 12 and 14 years old. So maybe his men were like, eh, I've had enough. Hmm. But who knows? Clovis was already a massive warlord by the time he was 16. So who knows how young he started his children. Gosh, yeah, real. Can you imagine that a 16 year old like leading a massive war? It's just crazy to think of now. Now these people are willing to do it. Just absolutely insanity to me when I realized like kings of these massive kingdoms and famous kings too. They're so young when they start out. Well, they have a lot more, uh, well, not always, but more training and education on the art of warfare than uh, your average peasant, I would imagine. That is true. That is very true. Yeah. I'd rather have a 16-year-old kid who's at least got some training <laughs> lead than, uh, you know, like some like 50-year-old farmer. That is That is very true. Yeah. Uh, Colter's poor wife, Guntiuk, whose children, remember he murdered, passed away, hopefully putting an end to her suffering in, uh, the year 532. Uh, I'm going to guess she died of being in medieval times. That's just what I'm going to go ahead and go with. At this time, Clotaire has a very good relationship with his second rate wife, At this time, Clotaire has a very good relationship with his second-rate wife, Ingund, who he has been with for about 15 years now. For some reason, now that Guntiuk is out of the picture, he officially marries Ingund in that same year, and she officially now becomes queen consort. So now she gets all the titles and stuff. My question is, why didn't he do this before? I, I don't understand like there's got to be a good reason behind it because Clotaire is a brilliant ruler and incredibly ruthless ruler so he knows what he's doing even at an early age but i wonder why yeah kind of has more power now that he can kind of do what he wants yeah all right well priorities right i could prioritize different things yeah, well, they had a very passionate night celebrating their official wedding, and uh, because of that, in 533, Ingud gave birth to a third son named Guntram. Shortly after their wedding, Ingud had a very big concern. This is the tip, the stereotypical medieval mindset. Her sister Aragon did not have a husband yet, despite being... <gasps> 18 years old yeah she's practically got one foot in the grave (laughs) yeah she's an old maid right now she's getting past yeah she's getting past uh marriage age terrible so scandal like please find a husband that is smart rich and powerful so that england's status is not so that my status is not dragged down by an unmarried sister because I am the queen consort now, my entire family needs to be uplifted. And this is another reason why I think the the 
Ingund could have been a peasant or just a lower rank nobility. Could be both in this situation. Just got to take all the uh, advantages you can get. Yeah. And after a while, Clotaire, he, he finds Ingund to tell her the good news. He found his sister, the perfect husband, who is absolutely staggeringly rich. He's extremely powerful, incredibly intelligent. And as a bonus, he is quite the handsome fella. It's she me. All ex- <laughs> it's me. I'm going to have, I'm going to marry you and your sister. Uh, yep. You hit it dead on the head. <laughs> you took one look at, um, the sister and went at Aragund and went, Ooh, I know exactly who you should marry. She Two must birds, have been one stone. quite the looker. Uh, so that, I think that is quite funny. Uh, you may not think this would please Ingood at all, but by all accounts, she was very happy with this. I mean, it's, she's probably like, hey, she's 18. This is better than nothing. Like she's not, <laughs> she's not getting any younger. Yes. Yeah, so now due to royal Frankish polygamy customs, her sister now has the same rank as her and is a fully legitimate Frankish queen consort. All the titles and everything. All right. Um, another reason she may not have minded this arrangement is it appears her sister had polio in childhood based on archaeological evidence of what could be Aragon's skeleton. There's great fierce debate in the academic community whether it's Aragon's skeleton or not but since okay. the past is the worst uh she probably was considered unmarriageable by royal circles because she had a limp yeah so that could be another reason um and that's backed up by our archaeological evidence but again they don't even know if that is her skeleton or not but if you're yeah, what, born in if you're yeah but it was in a sarcophagus, not too many, you know, <laughs> non-queens or boy or, or it could have been a different queen or whatever. But anyway, that's, uh, yeah. that could also be a reason. After this, um, after their wedding, Aragon gives birth to Kilperic and he is going to have a massive domino effect on the Merovingian kingdom and possibly the world. So despite her perceived lameness, I'm I'm uh, actually I'm actually researching him right now. She makes a big impact on history by um <laughs> just giving birth to Kilperic. So Must be not yeah. Good for yeah. her. Yeah. I guess uh <laughs> got to make your mark somehow. Exactly. Uh, in 533 or 534, his eldest brother, Theodoric, died. So seizing the opportunity, Clotaire and Kildebert attempted to repeat history by ki- killing Theodoric's son, Theodobert. However, Theodobert has a sizable defense force and the support of his nobility to discourage any attempt at his lands, which the brothers immediately decide, abort, abort mission. We, 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 this is not good. Get out of there. I'm sorry. We actually were just here to say hi. Don't ignore the warriors. I don't know why they followed us. Military exercise. Yeah, there you go. That's the key word these days, isn't it? Yeah, Clotaire, well, it works. It it does. 
Uh, Clotier, this was a serious miscalculation on his part. His battle-hardened nephew allied with his remaining brother, Kilderic. So Kilderic flips sides, as as one does against their brother. Uh, and the two kings overwhelm Clotaire, and he is forced to retreat into fortifications and was thrown under siege. However, in the little city of Tours, a saintly mother was praying that despite her son's murdering her grandson, she wanted no more bloodshed. The kings were readying themselves for battle, and all of a sudden the winds picked up, the heavens opened up to a downpour, lightning lights up the sky, boom, thunder booms overhead, and the battlefield is absolutely unman- unfightable. Yep. That's like the third kings, or fourth time we've gone through this. I was going to say, the kings decide to make a peace agreement and directly not to go to war against each other for the rest of their lives. This is the final time you have to hear that story, which I'm sure you are very happy about. Because I was tired Absolutely. of writing it every time, trying to find a different way of saying it. <laughs> yeah, something new. Uh, despite all their infighting, the Frankish kings finally finished stamp out the Burgundian resistance in 534. And I'm guessing this is actually what got them to stop trying to kill each other is, you know, hey, let's just keep, you know, allying against the, the world. And therefore, that's the only way we can stop ourselves from trying to kill one another, which is an odd way of coming to that. But I guess you got to do what you got to do. We never hear the fate of King Godemar. Uh, it could be because he escaped to a different Germanic court and since they didn't keep records. Or he died in a forest somewhere and his body isn't found. We never hear what happens to him. So, one of the great mysteries of history. In typical Merovingian fashion, the spoils of war are split up among the three Merovingian kings. But uh, while this is going on, the Burgundian re- uh, region, like uh, the Thuringian region, when all these regions are captured, it's basically like the ho- it's like a it's like a hostile takeover. Like the the higher ups are taken out, but like everyone else is fine. So like all of all of its customs, the clergy, the lower ones especially are it's all the same yeah people can't hardly tell the difference exactly yeah fred the farmer is just gonna be like oh so i just pay taxes to that guy then okay yeah maybe more (laughs) maybe less can't do anything about it anyways yeah oh my field's burned so i can't really do anything about that that was unfortunate next season Uh, in 535, his wife Ingund gave birth to their fourth son named Sigebert. So they got that going for them. And in 537, the Ostrogoths were in the fight for their kingdom against the ambitious Eastern Roman Emperor Justinian. And it was such a struggle that both sides offered the Franks to seize Ostrogothic land province in exchange for help. Um, in the fight again, in the fight in Italy against the other two factions, and the three kings just looked to both factions and said yes, and divided the land up themselves as tradition. So basically, they double crossed the two and just took the land and went, "What are you yeah. going to do about it?" Now we come back to our little princess Radagund. Around 538, she is finally of age for marriage. 
To catch you up what has been going on for Radagond from her capture to 538, she has learned how to read Latin, and she ferociously uses those skills to read religious texts. And because of this, this deepened her faith and made her a very pious woman, which might cause some problems for Clotaire, who didn't really care for the church. Ah. And in fact, she had zero desire to marry Clotaire or become a Frankish queen. That was not the lifestyle she wanted. She didn't want the trappings. She didn't want the, the, the big feast. She wanted to be left alone and read her books. Send her to the monastery. Yeah, but he wants her. Oh, and yeah, what, Clot <laughs> what Clotaire wants, Clotaire gets exactly now you're now you're catching up uh one day she found out that clotaire had been sent had sent for her to come to him for their their wedding and in and in the night when she found this out she and several companions tried to escape but were caught so she clearly does not want to be married to this guy it's not even like a eh, maybe no 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 very clear she tried to escape boy and probably put the lives of her friends in jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, this seems like a very strong opinion. Yeah. Uh, for, especially because, like, this is about as luxurious of a lifestyle as you're going to get, right? But as good she, as it's going to be. She was all holy. She does not want that luxury style. That luxury style is sinful and against her beliefs. Well, you know, a sinful but comfortable pillow goes a long way. I, I would agree. She she did not she does not. Um Clotar Clotaire had her sent to Soisson once they recaptured her, and soon the couple's wedding day came and it went. And Clotaire finally married his beautiful bride, Radagund, who he loved and enjoyed. Um, with this, he consolidated more land and even more power in Thuringia. So his presence was really, you know, a thing now over there. So this is and more of a strategic didn't... play than anything. He doesn't really care about, I mean, he, he cares about her looks, but that's about it. Yeah. And clearly she didn't love him. Yeah. Basically, her title and status were necessary for Clotaire to achieve legitimacy, and the nobility. So, like the nobility there doesn't get any funny ideas. Um, but to have that happen, she had to look and play the part of an opulent royal queen for him to display, and she had zero interest in this. She did not want to. She very clearly did not want to wear all the fancy garments and jewels that came with this. And yeah. right, what again? Also, kind of crazy, but it, yeah, yeah. For me, I would take this any day. Yeah, I. Yeah, the <laughs> I alternative will play of as defying. Your yeah, the alternative of defying a king is uh, pretty grim, especially this one. Uh, Radigan tried to avoid all pomp and circumstance, uh, and often remained in very simple clothing. She did not eat much at big banquets, and she gave her food to the poor. Uh, she fought extremely hard to not appear luxurious and pious, and this really irritated Clotaire. Uh, just continuing the irritation more and more. 
Uh, during important gatherings and feasts, she would find an excuse to retire and she would just go into the chapel and sing psalms by herself, as one does. I know you, the foodie, would rather be at the feast eating everything you can get your hands on. Yeah, and also, like, I don't know, this just feels like a way for um, Clotaire or an invitation for Clotaire to just, I don't know, kind of spite some more religious folk. Start yeah. revving that persecution engine or something. Yeah, the problem is the church is ridiculously powerful at this time, so uh, he's got to walk yeah. a very tight line. I don't know. He's gotten away with a lot. All of her actions, obviously, would start to cause a stir in his court. There were jokes that Clotaire married a nun, which is really bad for what he was trying to accomplish with this marriage. He needed it to seem like, you know, she was this opulent royal queen that was uh, at his bedchamber all the time. That criticism isn't inaccurate. Like It really feels like. Yes, Uh, this led to several one-sided arguments that nearly came to violence. So, uh, not not a great situation. At one point, like, Clotaire, you got other wives that love you. Just stop. But at the other... So, like, obviously the holier-than-thou drives me nuts that, you know, this woman is displaying. But at the same time, she doesn't want to marry you. Get over it. (laughs) Again... That's not the way the game is played right now. That's, the past yeah, is that's, the worst. That's not how kingdoms work. Nope. In 542, Clotaire and his brother Kildebert took up their favorite pastime of... So while that's going on, they just went, oh, he went to take... He went to go do some stress relieving and roughed up the Visigoths a little bit. Uh, they seized the city of Pamplona. And then, you know, full of confidence, it was an easy siege. They go after the city of Zaragoza, but it didn't go so well. They had to break siege, decided they had enough fun, and they went back over the Pyrenees to their respective kingdoms with their way gets nice and full of loot. So at least their, you know, endeavor wasn't empty-handed. In 545, Clotaire receives news that his mother, Clotilda, passed away. And uh, this got Kildebert and Clotaire to actually honor their mother together. They actually managed to do something together other than try and kill other people. Um, with the grand funeral procession, and they buried her next to her husband, Clovis, and their other daughter, Clotilda. And this is their ass-lat act of working together for their mother. After this, their mother is no longer in the picture for them to, you know, be guilty and, you know, try and be at peace with. The other two are now going to be at each other's throats until they die. She was uh, the, the, the little angel on their shoulder. She was. By 545... The pious wife, Radagund's brother, is the last surviving member of the Thuringian royal family. And Radagund, up to this point, has been refusing to play ball during their entire marriage. So it was a pretty easy decision for Clotaire to have the last Thuringian threat assassinated, and that completely eliminated them from his list of rivals. Not a problem anymore. I'm yeah. guessing an 
also was a bonus that this would hurt Radagon deeply. Like, you know, you're not playing ball with me. Look what I can do. Yep. Yeah, this is some good, like, psychopathic kind of thing. Oh, yeah, definitely. And like, if you can't, if you won't love me, then I'll just take away everything else you love. Exactly. This is very much that. Very controlling, psychopathic. And political uh, advantage, too. But and, who's counting? Yeah. yeah, all of the above. Uh, this is the final straw for Radagon. She can no longer live with this godless murderer. She flees to the French commune, Noyon, and he runs to the bishop there, the future Saint Medard, and basically said, ran there as fast as she could, and she goes, you concentrate me, consecrate me as a deaconess now. Like, she knows she's on the clock, because Colter is going to come running for her. Uh, he denies her and responds with, oh, marriage is a very sacred sacrament of the church for two souls merging together as one and breaking that is going against God's will. And she's, you know, up against the clock. She needs to get this guy to, because if she gets consecrated, she can't really um, be forced into marriage. That would not even Clotaire would go against that because that is, uh, he'd be excommunicated right away instantly. Yeah. Which would have not great effects as we've discussed. Uh, really, he's denying her because Clotaire has a reputation and the bishop probably wanted to keep his head on his shoulders, which self-preservation. Yeah. But, Rad but Radigund is desperate. She does not back down. She is... Again, she knows that he could be here anytime, and she hits the bishop with a final knockout punch. If you, if you delay in consecrating me, we both know that is because you fear a man more than you fear the almighty power of God. What do you think that's going to do for your soul on the day of judgment? Game over. Mic drop. Mic drop. Yeah, exactly. Um, Radigund obviously gets... <laughs> <laughs> you can't go against that uh she gets consecrated in time and uh not wanting to you know piss off the church completely Clotaire gets the message and leaves her alone there are sources in the 14th century that have this whole elongated tale where Clotaire changes his mind and she goes on another adventure and it contains miracles running away from Clotaire. I'm just going to call it all BS. You can go look it up if you want and move on. It was just a bunch of fluff that we didn't need. It doesn't add anything. Cool. Uh, but just to let you know, it's there. The bishop, on the other hand, <laughs> conveniently dies that same year probably right around that time in 545 and Clotaire just happened to be visiting him during this time yeah it's it's cold flu and knife in the back season and uh uh despite this ridiculous coincidence not one source comes out and says that he has the bishop killed i can't find anyone that comes out and says hey look he definitely killed this bishop for doing this under threat of death <laughs> like um, yeah like there's yeah. no way he he didn't kill him because she after, died after this too clotaire is gonna build a massive uh 
not her. He doesn't kill her. He kills the bishop. I don't know if I was clear on that. She died of natural causes, or he died of natural causes. <laughs> yeah, he, yeah. Uh, Clotaire actually builds an entire like abbey in this uh, bishop's name. So Gra- that that's, is that's even nice. more evidence for me that he did it. <laughs> Just got to be cheeky. Yeah. Uh, Radigan gets her wish of leading a pious life. She gets to read her manuscripts in peace, and there's no record of her bearing Clothair any children. Reading between the lines, the marriage may not have been consummated. It might have been. Um, Clothair needed to do it for legitimacy reasons, but it that's about it in terms of activity in the bedroom. But again, this is Gregory reporting all this. I doubt he wants you know, a holy saint to be dirtied by the act of sex, even though that's what happened to consummate a marriage. Yeah, it's, it strikes me as, um, this, this whole thing strikes me as some form of um, propaganda, I guess, or storytelling. Oh, definitely. And that's what, again, that's what Gregory did. His entire thing that he writes that we use as our sources is based on how awesome the saints are like radigund and how awful the nobility is like clotaire good man greg and with that we close out the radigund saga so you got a nice little neat bow we actually close something up for once clotaire's probably favorite wife ingud dies in 546 and unfortunately, without the desire to please Ingood, Clotaire separates himself from Aragund. I don't know if this because she no longer looks appealing to him, if the whole limp was actually an issue, or if maybe it was not politically adv- advantageous to have her anymore. Any one of those things could be it. Yeah. Um, despite this, Aragon appears, appears to act as a foster mother to her sister's children. So that's kind of nice, at least. In 555, Clotaire receives news that his grandnephew, Teutobald, died of his chronic illness without children. Uh, so his wife is young and available. Uh, so, Clotaire adding- <laughs> Add another wife to the ranks. Exactly. He's like, you know what? Another brother dies. I need another wife. Well, not brother. This is nephew now. Uh, yeah. Dies. I need another wife. Uh, he sees this opportunity right right away. Uh, and before he marches right into Metz, Teutobald's capital. And before he can do anything, anyone can do anything, he marries the queen widow, Baldrada. Uh in a chance to legitimize his claim on his grandnephew's kingdom, as well as an alliance with the Lombard kingdom who, uh, the Lombards are starting to grow, um, in influence on Italy, uh, after the Ostrogoths collapse, they kind of fill the void over there. And, uh, because she was a Lombard princess before her first marriage to his grandnephew. According to Gregory of Tours, Clotaire started having what seems like consensual consensual sex with Valdrada, and his bishops finally had enough of his bullshit. <laughs> They're like, okay, took long enough. 
Uh, the only reason I think it's consensual, despite the egregious age difference, is that this marriage benefits Valdrada just as much as it does Clotaire, especially if she gets pregnant, um, because she mm. would get a lot of land with her kids getting stuff. So it actually be very beneficial to her. Um, I don't know. You'd have the passage of time, and uh, it's not like Gregory wants knows or even cares. Yeah, yeah. However, the bishops were not in a mood. They were not in the mood for this. They basically went up to <laughs> Colter, went bad. I pointed it at him, went bad. Stop having sex with your grand nephew's widow. I mean, come on. He's right there. He hasn't even been buried yet. We let you get away with a lot of nonsense, but what you're doing is unholy and incestuous, and quite frankly, we will not stand for it. All this right. is what I was talking slap about. On the wrist. Yeah. What's so the slap for, on the wrist? Well, it's a little more than a slap on the wrist. Clotaire actually has to bend to the church on this one. He looks at his new wife and says, sorry, but I can't do anything. Their marriage is annulled. Which means in the eyes of the church and law, it never happened. Yep, yep. Um, since I don't believe that a divorce was a thing yet, um, I, that's why I'm guessing it's annulled. It could be repudiated. Um, but, you know, annulments aren't, divorce isn't even a thing during King Henry VIII's reign in like the 1600s. So, like, I'm guessing this is annulment. Since the church forced her annulment, they had to compensate Valdrada for the breakdown in her marriage. The church did. So they sent her off to, to marry the Bavarian king, Garibald, who is about nine years younger than her. And it appears that she made the best in this scenario. Like she got the best um, out of everything that could happen <laughs> for everyone involved. Yeah. So good for her. Closer to her age. Yeah, good for her. At the very gets, least. Yeah. Gets some hot shot young king. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, as long as he's powerful enough. Yeah. Yeah, the Bavarians are pretty powerful. All we'll right. find out when we go over to Bavaria. Good for her. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of nice every once in a while when a woman gets a win. <laughs> we don't have too many of that in this era. There's, uh, yeah, not a lot of wins going around in general. No, no, there is not, except for Glotaire. He gets a lot of wins. Good job, uh, Glotaire. Uh, according to Salian law, Clotaire was now forced to share Teutobald's kingdom with his older brother, Kildebert. He's like, fine, here, have half of the kingdom. It appears Clotaire was pretty ticked off about this because in that same year, he marches up to Saxony and pounds the living daylights out of the Saxons into submission. It also could be that the Saxons revolted. That also could be the reason. Mm -hmm. Chicken or egg. Uh, in order to get him to stop hitting them, uh, Clotaire exacted an annual tribute of 500 cows. I've always wondered wow. about these types of taxes before coinage was like the main trading vehicle. Cause it would be an absolute pain in the ass to herd that many cattle all the way to like Mets or like, you know? well, like maybe you do it like progressively throughout the year. You know, you do like three trips. It could be either that or you cut or you dry the cut up the meat and dry it and you store it that way right away. 
Yeah, but then um, if you're talking cows, you do lose the like the milk from the cattle. Yeah, we don't know if they were beef steers or not. They don't exactly. Maybe I don't even know yeah. if beef steers are a thing. We just know cows. Well, well I mean, you know, you got your bulls, right? So, yeah. Now, yeah, whether you uh, give them the snip snip back then, that I can't attest to, but. I can't imagine uh, they did. I don't know. Either that way. That creates more product for you. Why would you? Yeah, that's fair. Uh, but, you know, the again, the, the, the cows are worth so much more than the bulls anyway. So, I mean, you're going to be raising them for, well, as much as you can for beef, I'm sure. Gotta Unless you want to kill you it gotta, early. You got to have for... your breeding bull and your, your cows. Yeah. yeah. And it could so. be uh, it could be a language translation thing where it's cows and bulls, but we don't know. That's I assumed it was both, and that you probably just yeah. give them a. They're, they're honestly, you're getting five hundred. How choosy you're really gonna be? <laughs> like <laughs> exactly. The Thuringian nobility made a mistake of aiding the nobil the Saxons in this little dispute that they had. So after dealing with the Saxons and exacting his little tribute, he led a punitive raid against Thuringia, which was probably an absolute nightmare for the common people caused by the Thuringian nobility. Because this is the playbook of this era. You hit the nobility, hurts. Where does it hurt? Their pocketbooks. That's the peasants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah. cold, but that's what it is. Uh, Kildebert being the good older brother he is, he encouraged the Saxons to revolt once again against Clotaire. And according to Gregory, Clotaire knew that if he retaliated against the Saxons, this time it would be a bloodbath because both sides have built up their sources. They're kind of hardened by war. I'm guessing maybe his brother gave some mercenaries, maybe. Um, there had to be a reason after he just beat the living daylights out of him that he goes, eh, I don't feel like going to war. And the Saxons, too, didn't want to be massacred, and they agreed to resume tribute, and the two sides began negotiations. However, the negotiations were short uh, when Clotaire's men went up to him and said, Look, we got all dressed up to fight and pillage. We'll kill you if you don't let us kill the Saxons. Yeah. As a result... A scene of chaos and carnage ensues after a day of fierce fighting. The red-stained, devastated landscape is littered with the dead and wounded. And after the bloodletting ceased, both sides sued for peace. <laughs> I'm going to call bullshit with Gregory that Clotaire wanted peace, but, forced his, but his soldiers forced his hand. Has anything yeah. up in... Clotaire's life up to this point made you think that he cares about a little massacre. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never gonna <laughs> let uh, a good uh, slaughter stand in the way of gain. Yeah, 
Yeah. What I think would happen in this situation is like Kildebert helped the Saxons build up their forces. Clotaire went to go teach the rebels a lesson. And what happened was an unexpected, fiercely contested battle that devastated both armies and Kildebert had to, or, or in Clo- and uh, Gregory had to make up a reason why Clotaire wasn't extremely victorious and it was kind of a stalemate. It's kind of interesting it's that just, you'd want to make up a reason why he's victorious. Maybe he was alive when he was writing this. I don't know. I I don't remember if Clotaire was alive mm. yet when he was. It just writing, seems or odd his that children were alive. He was writing yeah, this for his children. Yeah, it's just kind of odd. You'd want to make a spin on him being victorious, considering he's very uh, not on great terms with the church. I agree, but at the same time, he's. He's kind of like a pretty big figure because, again, Gregory is, um, he throws a lot of little shade at Clotaire, but he never comes right out against him. And I think that's because he's contracted to do these histories by Clotaire's sons. Ah, yeah, that'll do it. Or a son. I can't, I forget, whenever we get to that king, we'll, we'll mention it. But that's that's probably why he's got to tread a fine line. I'm sure he wrote some poems slandering him in a way that the the sources sometimes do. Uh, is they'll like go into some religious thing to like backhand a king without him realizing it. So while Clotaire is off teaching those bad Saxons a lesson, he gets a message that his rival brother Kildebert allied himself with Clotaire's own, his own son, Cram, who we introduced all the way back in the first part of this episode. And remember, Cram is born anywhere from 520 to 540. Little background on Cram. Uh, Gregory Tours describes Cram as cruel and depraved prince who was extremely ill-advised in nearly everything he did. <laughs> Glowing so. recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I love it. <laughs> uh, it's kind of uh, fun to see who he picks on and who he doesn't. It really is. It's really fun to watch. Uh, so the, again, the sources are just as entertaining as these kings sometimes. Uh, when Clotaire annexed his grandnephew uh, Teutobald's kingdom, he sent Cram to basically run the land for me. Because I got other shit to deal with. So he essentially like made him a governor of the lands, but like he obviously wasn't given the title governor, that that wasn't a thing yet. And Clotaire's advisors and uh, were letting him know that his son was really pissing off the locals by basically doing whatever he wanted. He constantly broke the rules because I'm the king's son without impunity. He terrorized the local nobility. I'm going to guess like a very sadistic prince i king joffrey of game of thrones i know you won't know comes to mind Mm -hmm. uh clotaire was in the mindset of i'll deal with this later it's the locals problem not mine the saxons are more of an issue right now and then those advisors told him that kildebert actually was encouraging cram to extend his influences over the nearby territories and actually cram right now is acting like a king separate from his father that got clotaire's attention immediately now it's his problem since he's you know 
directly rebelling now he's not just being an asshole he's he's directly challenging his father's rule uh the problem is is clotaire is still fighting the saxons and he's still needed there to deal with them and fight that war so he's got to send his sons caribert and guntram to put an end to graham's insignificant rebellion Unfortunately, this didn't go according to plan. For un some unknown reason to Clotaire, his sons didn't attack Graham and were in Burgundy for some reason with their armies. And uh, it turns out later that Graham fooled them into thinking that Clotaire was dead, so they raced to Burgundy to not be left out of the secession plans. Which, good move on Graham's part. Pretty impressive uh, deception check. By the time Clotaire and his other two sons figured out this little maneuver, his son Cram had actually seized the settlement Shalon sur Chon. Uh, and this is like in eastern in eastern France. And as if this situation could not be any more of a headache for Clotaire, Cram made the strategic move of marrying the daughter of the Count of Orléans, solidifying his legitimacy in the region. Because like you were saying, I don't know if it was this podcast or another one, the locality kind of has a lot more power than the overall kings do in these um, areas. I don't know if we've touched on that as much. Oh, but... okay. I figured it was a lot of just like once you're solidified as a king, it's it's a little harder because you can't just go assassinating other kings. Exactly. Got to do it by force, the old fashioned way. Yeah. So uh, his son then invaded Clotaire's kingdom proper and he uh, pushed as far as Reims, laying waste to the people and land all around the city. So this little minor irritation turned into a full-blown nightmare that was really getting out of hand. Clotaire is used to being on the offensive, so he was now thrown on the defensive. So he, right now he has to worry about the threat of invasion from Kildebert and Cram expanding his rebellion because there's a good chance that Kildebert is aiding Cram this entire time, and that's why Cram is so successful in his invasions. In it, in it and his moves he's getting help from uncle kildebert mm -hmm. the walls are caving in he really needs to figure out his next move fast the year is coming to an end and hopefully the winter can give him some respite to come up with a game plan so okay he made it to winter and in late december 558 a messenger came up to him and he probably went, oh my God, what? It's winter for God's sakes. What do you have for me now? And he goes, uh, oh, your, uh, the messenger goes, oh, your brother Kildebert died on December 23rd. So that Sweet. had to be the biggest sigh of relief. <laughs> Despite being winter, Clothair, Clotaire sprang to action. The cold was no longer an issue. The chill in his bones just magically vanished he summoned his men and marched straight to paris which immediately bent the knee and he sees kildebert's treasury and lay claim to his lands so 47 years after clovis's death his son clotaire reunited the kingdom under his one banner and he did this despite never directly being against his brothers in any direct war 
like any direct battle. We never mm. heard. The closest we got was when Clotilda miraculously got a storm to go through. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I'm hoping <laughs> that now we can change some laws. Yeah. You know, like the one about dividing your kingdom amongst all of your <laughs> children equally. Yeah, you would think that uh, this would teach you a lesson of, hey, maybe I shouldn't have that happen. Or you could have the effect of, eh, he's, I'm dead. What do I care? But, but you care about your legacy, so I don't know. How about a legacy where you should make a smart decision? How about that? <laughs> this is the Franks you're talking about. I mean, I don't like the smart decisions. We'll see Apparently if he makes not. a smart decision at the end of this thing. We just have glorious hair and that's it. Exactly. So after Clotaire took control over the entire Frankish domain, his cram lost all allies because, you know, Kildebert's gone. He has nowhere to go. He's completely outmatched. You know, his forces from Kildebert basically turn on him and he's screwed. And father and son met under a temporary truce, but the two sides could not come up with a peaceful resolution to the rebellion. Which isn't looking good for, for Cram. Shortly after their meeting that went nowhere, Clotaire received news that Cram fled to Brittany uh, with his wife and daughters. Do you know where Brittany is? Uh, that is basically like the the French side of the English Channel, yeah? Yes. Well, yeah, it's the far eastern part. And it's like that little tip of France. Not, not eastern, western part. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. 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 Basically, English Channel. Fran Let's go to France. Modern day France. That land that borders that. I uh, yeah, most of the western border though. I don't think it extends oh, the okay. whole way. So less I could north, be wrong, more. but it's it's more of all the way north and all the way west and like a little oh, corner. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> so he took refuge under the protection of the king of Gwened, uh, which will become a later English kingdom, Canal the First. In 559, a messenger comes by and asks for an audience with the king. This messenger lets Clotaire know that his problem child is at it again. Uh, this time, he is actually head of the Brittany forces, and he is marching right into Clotaire's territory, completely wiping out villages and tiny towns. So, more unimaginable horrors to the poor peasant population. Yeah, dangerous game. Clotaire was too lenient on his son's transgressions in the past, but this time he has to show he's in control and he has to retaliate in order to keep hold of his power. So he and his other son, Kilbrick, from uh, his marriage to Aragund, summon their forces and they go to put an end to this madness. The Frankish forces catch up with the Breton forces for a showdown. The two sides meet on the field of battle. No details of the carnage survived other than it was a fierce struggle that left many dead, including the Gwened King Canal. So that didn't work out so well for him, sheltering Cram. I don't know why you would. Mm -hmm. Unless you thought he really was able to 
take out Kildebert, who, you know, I don't know, had control of all of, not Kildebert, Clotaire, who had, I don't know, control of all of France. Why would you mess with that? I don't know. It's, yeah. <laughs> the gambit. I guess. After the king's downfall, the Gwened warriors dropped everything and ran. Cram managed to escape in the chaos of the route. Cram's uh, had an escape plan with ships waiting for him off the coast. However, his family wasn't with him, so he made a detour to grab his family in the escape. Uh, according to Gregory of Tours, this allowed Clotaire's men to catch up to him and capture him and his family around 560. So, you know, good on him for grabbing his family and not leaving them to the wolves, but unfortunately, that was his undoing. Hmm. I don't know. I'd like to say I would rather grab my family and not just leave them to the wolves. I, I, I can respect his decision. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Yeah. Clotaire sentenced him to death for high treason against Clotaire and the realm. He was tied up in some poor peasant's hut. Uh, his wife and daughters were also forced inside and bound to the structure and the entire structure was set on fire burning the entire family alive yeesh ah whoa yeah. <laughs> we've had some horrific had, yeah. executions that i think is the worst one yet you had to because he it, probably watched yeah. his wife and daughters being burned alive with him like oh my god yeah oh Whoa. it's um i had chills i was researching yeah. this part before bed and that was a huge mistake <laughs> yeah, burning alive is not a pleasant thing oh, i would imagine no. so yeah it's I've, it's i don't know if it's the worst we've had but it's definitely like one of those just i don't know cold efficiency Plays. women have no power in the franker society what why do they need to die <laughs> in this horrific way it's just, just put them in a convent or sure. something oh my god let's, i mean let's I, it's more efficient it is if you're just talking like yeah in in a scenario where honor is not your primary concern yeah yeah, yeah. Clotaire does not really give a damn about honor, as it appears. According to Gregory of Tours, so take this with a heaping pile of salt, Clotaire became racked with the guilt over the way he murdered Cram. I hope it would be also because of the way he murdered his, I don't know, daughter-in-law and, I don't know, granddaughters? I would hope murdering your own granddaughters by burning them alive would give you some guilt. The, I, maybe, but I feel like if you're going to these steps, you're already past the guilt at this point. This isn't, this isn't like, this yeah. Is not, yeah, your, your guilt and your, your moral compass, I think has already been shattered long time ago. Yeah. However, Clotaire must have had an awakening, or he must have known that the end of his life was starting to come to an end, must have started feeling old, because he became saintly real fucking fast. 
he traveled to Gregory's hero, St. Martin's tomb, and bought, brought a ridiculous amount of gifts in attempt to repent for his not-so-Christian behavior throughout his entire reign. Yeah, you got to hedge your bets here because... <laughs> He's like, damn, I fucked up. I but remember, in Christian, you know, in the, in the Christian literature, is you can all is forgiven as long as you accept, you know, your sins, and you ask for God's forgiveness. You can, yeah, you can commit massive massacres and kill your family by burning them alive, but that's okay. Jesus is here. Yes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I, it's one of those things. It's also, it's like, he's probably like, well, I can't take this wealth with me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think, I really think, like, he obviously they believe in heaven and hell and that kind of thing. And I of bet course. you, I yeah. really think he really was like, okay, I got to make up for all the shit I did my entire reign. Which doesn't in, mean you can't believe in something, but also take a convenient view of it, though. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. And Clotaire is out hunting in the forest of Coos in uh, 561. And in this trip while hunting, he was struck with fever. And since he's in the Dark Ages, he lives in the Dark Ages, he died from being sick. And uh, Gregory tries to claim that he died exactly on the one-year anniversary of Cramsed's execution because he's trying to show that he had guilt over Crams and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I find that completely, I doubt it. I just don't believe yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, press X to doubt. Yeah. Uh, his surviving sons brought his body to Soissan and he was buried with very high honors and very great reverence. I mean, this is the end of an era. This is the end of Clovis's sons and Theodoric's line. So everything from here on out is due to the decisions of the aftermath of Clotaire's reign. So just a little fun little thing of Clovis's son's reign out of all the betrayals and murders, we somehow to get through six kings without any one reigning king being killed by another Merovingian king because all the kingdoms died when the others, you know, were, were without heirs. They killed the heirs before they became kings, but they never killed their own brothers. Which is pretty rare when a kingdom is divided up by four with the kicker of two mothers. And the reason I say this is usually when there's more than one mother, many... Things get shaky really fast. Exactly. So, that's what I got for Clotaire's reign. Kind of very long, very illustrious, and a movie all in on, on its own. You ready to rate him? Yeah, let's give her a go. Royal power. All right. So, how long do you think his reign was? Oh, jeez. These are ones I always never keep track of. Um, also, not trying to peek here. Um, I mean, he's a pretty long-lived fellow. Did a lot. Good forty years. Very close. He reigned from five eleven to five sixty one. A total of fifty years. Ah. Ten years. He had a whole half, decade. Half a century. That's pretty good. Pretty damn good. So 
some things to think about with royal power. By allying with his brothers, he expanded the domains of the Frankish Empire itself. He reunites the empire, outlasting everyone else. He holds more territory and more control over his lands than even his father Clovis did. Uh, he won every war he got involved in. He may have lost a battle or two, but he regrouped and came out victorious in the overall conflicts in the end. Not every great general is going to you know, win every battle. Uh, he wiped out all the Burgundian and Thuringian kingdoms, completely wiped out the Thuringian royal family by murdering his wife's brother. Uh, he used marriage as a political weapon, was very successful in it, married the widow of kings immediately before anyone could do anything, which gave him access to the dead king's treasury and which would allow him to bribe the nobility and get immediate legitimacy in the newly annexed area. He put down the Saxons' rebellion twice, along with many others I'm sure that we'd never hear about. Maybe he was too powerful that they just went, I'm not going to rebel. His son Cram's rebellion twice as well, and he eliminated the Gwynedd king in battle. So, pretty damn good. Yeah. It's not 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 really any blemishes to go off of here. No, I do you see any reason to not go a full ten? Yeah, I think that's pretty fair. I mean the 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 rebellions a little rough. I know you can't always control everything, so. But he, but he stomped him out. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, just because you're powerful doesn't mean that a rebellion is going to happen. Although he let matters how you respond to it. We let Trom Crom, you know, kind of seed himself a little bit in. Yeah, it is true. That is true. But I think it was more of he, he didn't want to kill his own son. Yeah, it just yeah, it just feels kind of because it's like the only blemish was, I can think yeah. of. Yeah, I like, think Clovis I'm... had more blemishes than that, and we gave Clovis a full twenty points. Yeah, it's that's tough. Um, yeah, I'll give him a ten. All right, so Oli. All right, ten out of ten for twenty. Infamy. Okay. This is his category. Before we list anything, he broke the rating system to me. And unless you convince me otherwise, he gets 11 out of 10 for me. And here's why. He is an accomplice in the revenge killing and murder of the Burgundian king, Sigismund, and his wife and his remain and their remaining children. He commits a huge no-no by marrying his dead brother's wife, uh, which is directly, again, against the core of tenet of Christianity at this time. It's incest not a line you cross um oh also that while he married to this wife he murdered his two step nephews stepchildren slash nephews in cold blood in front of his own mother their grandmother he marries sisters a later ex king will get excommunicated for this very act Radigund, his prisoner wife, did not want to be his wife so much that she ran away for twice from him and got a bishop killed for consecrating her as deaconess so she could no longer be married to him. Also, 
Radagond is a first cousin to both of his wives, Ingund and Aragund, if their royalty background is to be believed. So he is definitely the king of incest. Um, Fantastic. That's a title. That's a title we missed. That is a title we missed. We got to put that down. Dang. Uh, Tired to that. I am confident he tied also to that story. I'm confident he killed Bishop Medard for consecrating his wife. There's no hard evidence, but you cannot tell me he didn't. I just. Yeah. Yeah. The, 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 The dates line up too much. Yeah. He marries his grandnephew's widow pretty much right after his nephew died. Uh, and the bishops got in such a tizzy about this incestuous relationship that despite the marriage being consummated, which is usually the big thing to like, you have to say that, oh, they didn't have sex because then she's dirty, so to speak, because again, Mm -hmm. past is the worst, um, that they annulled it. So it takes a lot for an annulment. Yeah. The way he killed Cram <laughs> and his daughter-in-law and his granddaughters is pretty egregious, even by Dark Age standards. And something we didn't ta- talk about because we just didn't find time, he started taxing the church, which yeah, not great. <laughs> it's like taxing he's been, God. Yeah. He's been a, he's yeah. been a very he hasn't infamous... He has been paying his fair share. Yeah, he's been a pretty infamous bad boy. So that is my reasons for giving 11 out of 10. All right. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, if we want to break the rules a little bit. I enjoy breaking the rules. They're meant to be. All right. Mine goes to 11. So 11, 11 for 22. Religious passion. Ingud and Clotaire made many additions to churches, including the decorations of the tomb St. Germain Auxier. The basilica is um the basilica is preserved and it's given a royal chalice. Uh Clotaire financed the construction of a monastery of the Saint Croix and Poitier, which um uh gives which goes to Radagund, which is kind of interesting. He transfers the reliquaries that the queen had accumulated during her stay with the king to the monastery of St. Croix. So he made some kind of effort there. The repentance at the end of his life, which in the eyes of the church, all of his evil deeds are forgiven because he repented at the end against all of this, all of the transgressions against the church we just talked about in his infamy section. Yeah. Um, kind of hard to to evaluate this one just because he kind of did things that we would normally give people high marks for also Mm -hmm. did things that people we would give horribly low marks for exactly so uh i'm willing to split the difference and also just give my own personal spin on the fact of his level of cynicism and political expediency i'm willing to Split the difference and go down to a four. I was thinking a two, but. Yeah, because like does great things. So that's like, you're like, yeah, I mean, obviously not a 10, but like, you know, and then you've got the did bad things. Zero. Five is half. And then I'm like, well, I'll just down tick them. 
I will go three. Yeah, me too. Three sounds better. Three and a three for six. Stability. So I don't think his stability is that great. Despite his power, he had two rebellions, and it doesn't seem like his regions were that stable at this time. Yeah. Yeah. He, I mean, he's kind of a, even by most standards, he, he he's a warmonger engaging in a lot of uh, risky wars. Oh, not, not, you know, not just like, oh, I'm going to go beat up on people. This is like, some of these are risky. Yeah. It's not like, oh, I'm just going to go beat up on the Visigoths down south. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's no rite of passage. So, um, but he's got some stuff. Obviously, he's reuniting things again. That probably... we did give we did give massive points to Clovis for reuniting the entire France for the first time. Yeah. Uh I yeah, I think this is pretty fair. The the little infighting things and rebellions are a little tough, but uh if we're looking at ourselves out of five Mm, I wanted to give like a three. I'll echo that. Royal Demise. So his death was a fun little twist on the trope of dying during a hunting trip. Usually it implies a violent death, but this time it was just he died of illness. <laughs> so it's kind of a, it's kind of fun, but yeah, not really what I'm looking for. No, but enough that I give it a point. Um, I'll get a, I'll give it like a. Yeah, it's just a one for me. Just just enough. It's fun. No murder, but it's good yeah. fun. One and one for two. Legacy. Okay, so he obviously has a massive dynasty in case you were counting all of the children he had. So we'll start off with his wife, Ingund. Uh, this is their known children, by the way. Very much could have had more. Uh, Gontier, and he died around 532 before his father. You have Caribert, who will become king of Paris, king of, um, sorry. And then you have Guntren, who will become king of Orléans. And you have Sigebert, who will become king of Austrasia. Uh, the two children we did not mention because we have no idea of their birth year is another Kilderic. Um, all we know is he died before Clotaire and Clodoswinth, and she became queen consort of the Lombards, so they must have solidified an alliance eventually by marrying King Albuin of the Lombards. So that is all of his children from uh, Ingund. Then you have the Kunsin, who had... Uh, Cram, and obviously <laughs> we went into length why he didn't survive his father. Uh, no known children with his poor wife, Guntiuk. I think that was very much to her benefit. No known children with Radagund. And uh, Aragund, uh, he had is Kilperic I, who would become king of Neustria. He did not have any confirmed children with Valdrada. Um, Clotaire was also known to have multiple mistresses and fathered several illegitimate children throughout Gaul. So that's just the dynasty portion of his legacy. Uh, 
as far as other things, what he left behind, he united all of Francia, and now his children are the next generation that takes over. Similar to Clovis, the three kings are from one wife, and one king is from another wife. It's kind of funny how he directly mirrors Clovis. Um, the only difference is that both of the wives are sisters, which is funny. Um, and also the same as Clovis, he marries off one legitimate daughter. This time... She She's married off to the Lombards instead of the Visigoths. Uh, his name gives Riven gives rise to the common name Lothair, which was the name of my real estate agent, so it's still around. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. The, the big works. one, his children are his legacy. They will leave a massive impact on Western Europe. Um, we have House of Dragon style Game of Thrones Civil War coming up. So that, and it is <laughs> the reason why Charlemagne and all that stuff happens is because his children kind of set that all up. All right. So I don't know how to rank this one. It's kind of convoluted. Um, left behind I mean, a lot of kids <laughs> yeah so I, I think it's fair to like give him like fairly high ranks but like not all that in a bag of chips because uh let's see reunited france right mm -hmm. or franks should say um, expanded the boundaries that's true too i mean it's kind of, but yeah yeah like the, the lasting legacy being his kids his yeah um, again his again i'm gonna go against him on the whole he split he he splits his kingdom up among his children because it's celiac law they didn't change yeah. the law yeah um which i guess then sets the stage for how the entirety of politics play out mm -hmm. it's because gonna everybody be is well that's a that's a that's the thing is like ever like it's not like we had like like for example if we had say the you know uh like Kildebert and Clotaire still having their respective parts of France then they have kids they divide that up equally that's like a different level of like I don't know, political convolutedness. I'm so glad like, that didn't happen. Could you imagine trying to research yeah. all of those kings too? Oh my God. Oh yeah. And then like, yeah, well, then there's, there's some, I'm sure there's some argument of like potential legitimacy as you go down the line. Like you're just like, oh God, like these guys are descended from this brother. This are mm -hmm. descended from this brother. Now we got like, you know, we're, we're, we're going down into some rabbit hole, at least on this first generation, everyone's equally legitimate theoretic you know in the it's eyes like a, of it's like a soft somebody. it's like a soft reset in a D, D campaign like you had clovis's whole thing you had the whole world kind of go through together and it's not kind of like a new all right the runway is clear let's see what you do with the playground in terms of his children yeah it just kind of like brings everything back together just to like yeah i, I feel like it made probably with the current law with those laws at the time it probably made france less complex politically complex as a result of his uh pillaging mm -hmm. so yes. 
to say legacy out of 10 i'm willing to give like solid like six like lots of children great shapes the the way france's you know politics is done for uh, god knows how many years and i'm gonna uh, go eight doesn't feel like he makes into pop culture or he doesn't, doesn't really make into pop culture, but this this podcast is about literature. showing the ones that we don't learn about in pop culture or literature. But I guess, yeah, that oh, is yeah, the legacy sure. aspect of it. I think he does. It is an untold it's like a it's like a behind the scenes legacy of like yeah, I mean, legacy can fair. come up in all different things. I, I was like I, debating his my head. Children, like, oh, six or seven. That was. I mean, I cannot establish it enough. His children just wreak havoc in Gaul. So, like, he it, it's it's definitely uh you know a, a, a legacy, good one or not. Like, it's it's there. It's a huge impact. What he does, the who he chooses to marry, has a massive impact. The fact that he marries Aragund. And now he has two wives, you know, involved in this next era that also yeah. has a massive implication. Every little decision he made, you can you can um, show when we go into our next kings how one tiny thing he does just has massive effects like a dominoes. So. Yeah. Uh, it's always hard to say just because, yeah, again, I don't know the whole yeah impact of all the kids. So I'll upgrade to a seven and leave it at that. All right. Sounds good. I'll stick with my eight. All right. Eight and seven for 15. All righty. So what's the total of uh, how many points he got? Yeah. All right. For a grand total of a nice 71. Oh, very nice. How does that compare with uh, his dad, Clovis? Oh, boy. Um, Probably loses big time on the religious aspect. Uh, yes. But uh, you know what? Clovis got an 89 to the 71, so hmm? I guess it's like almost 20 points. It's like It's a good chunk. But 71 I think if is I were a lot to, better than most. Yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I think because Clovis had just such a fresh ground to do that he was able to rack up so much points. Um, the other uh, Merovingian who scored better would be like Teutobert. Teutobert did? Really? Yeah. Yeah, well, by we 10 did... points. Wow. We gave him High King. I know that. We shouldn't have given it to Teutobert's father, but it's fine. <laughs> Speaking of which, do you think that Clotaire has the epicness to be crowned as High King in the Hall of Legends? Or is he just good enough to be a minor king in the Hall of Mediocrity? Or is he so bad that we should just burn his memory at the stake? Give that man a gold medal. Exactly. High King. I agree. Yeah. It's good stuff. Like congratulations. He makes a good story. Yes, he does. It was really fun to research. It was kind of the culmination of the entire Merovingian um of all of Clovis's sons kind of together. Yeah. 
it was it was good uh also it was nice that he kind of just like wrapped the whole story of an entire generation or two generations of mess yeah put it all back together just in time for everything to fall apart again (laughs) yes yes i agree i'm excited the the next part part uh part three in our merovingian campaign is going to be super fun i'm excited Well, uh, that brings us to the end of Clotaire the First. Let us know what you thought of him. Do you agree with us uh, crowning him High King? If not, let us know why. Uh, you can catch us on Messenger or on Facebook and on Instagram at Quest for Power or email us at questforpowerpod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed our series on Clovis's Sons, please give us a five-star review on podchaser.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you just want to tell a friend or family member you don't have to sign up onto any app or anything like that that also is hugely appreciated the more listeners we get the more we can grow this thing the more content we can generate if you want to join the lore masters guild and go on side quest adventures with us you can do so with you can do so at patreon.com quest for power That's all we got for this session. Next session, we get to start our new campaign following the offspring of Clotaire and what they do with the kingdom on Soft Reset. And finally, with that, the king is dead. Long live the king. 